Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. In 1919, he hit 29 home runs and was sold to the New York Yankees. and A-Rod going at it. Roberts is going. Masada's throw. Roberts, safe. And what can I say? Just dip my heart and, and call the Yankees my daddy. Welcome to Fanbase, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. Brian Shackman, John Senecal here for episode 111. And, you know, it's one of those things where you hear the name and you've seen where he's been. You know, for I'm 51. What are you, what are you Matt? 48. John, you're 48. So I, you don't really necessarily remember Clint Hurdle as a player, although when you think of those that great Royals team, he was he was out there for that. And and you might have focused on, you know, George Brett and some others or or Quisenberry and all the other players. But so when you get a chance to 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 speak with someone like that, that's one thing. But then you go back into his career and his life journey and I mean, I believe it as a journalist. Everyone has a story, and he's got a... He's got a few of them, I think. He's got <laughs> a heck of a story, and he joins us now. Uh, I don't know if it's a Mr. Hurdle, Manager Hurdle, Skip, um, Clint, how are you? Clint works really well, wherever <laughs> I go. So, you know, the reason why we we got like we have a one of our loyal listeners is a good friend of yours and and I'll, I'll leave him I'll leave him nameless and I was grateful for the connection, but you're in Hartford and you know you're working for the Rockies a team you managed for you know several years and I, I think we should just start there and just you know what are you doing in Hartford? Well, I am putting my eyes on our our double A team here and that that's inclusive. I I go and I walk the town, you know, the facilities. I'm just trying to be another set of eyes for Bill Schmidt. Um, Bill Schmidt reached out to me when he was named um, full-time general manager. You know, he had the interim, interim tag for a while. And he reached out to me after the uh, 21 season and asked if I would have any interest in, in coming back and, and helping out the Rockies. And I said, well, it depends on what you want me to do. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, it's not important what I want to do. I said, I, I think I want to hear how you think you can best utilize, you know, my experience. And he said, well, Clint, I've been a scouting director for almost 25 years where I go find talent. I hunt players. I'm college, high school. I'm all over. He goes, I don't have a lot of experience in player development and growing these players and the alignment of our, of our programs, pitching and hitting and fielding. Um, 
would you be willing to come back and invest most of your time in our player development organization? And I go, you know, it's funny you should say that because that's the only reason I would want to come back. I said I was blessed with a lot of major league time. And 17 years as a manager, I was also a hitting coach, you know, a player, a lot of time in the big leagues. So my heartbeat, my passion is helping grow boys into men and men into leaders and sharing some experience, strength, and hope with the managers and coaches in our affiliates. So that's it in a nutshell. I look at the facilities. I'm, you know, I spend time with Tim Restall. I get to know how the operation works a little bit here, the people that run our clubhouse our trainers, our strength and conditioning coaches. Um, basically, I'm a relationship builder is what I'm try- trying to do, and that's enough for now. It's plenty. Now, Clint, is that something that you're doing throughout the whole uh, minor league system, or is that like is this this is your first stop of the year, or is this? No, I do it throughout the system. We go up and down. It, it's, it runs from bottom to top and top to bottom. My first stop was in Albuquerque for opening day. Um, I'm only here for a short visit. i got to get back home. i got a son that rose crew. Um, he's got a big event this weekend, but I'll be here through Friday. Uh, come up short on one game. This is my second visit of the season, my second trip. And we have a good ball club here. We had a good ball club here last year. And I think the, the fans and the, the yard goats are going to appreciate the pitchers and the players we put in here. Obviously a beautiful place for double-A players to play and a, a well-run operation as well tim does a nice job rest all running the program yeah i was gonna make fun i was gonna make fun of him but i can't he's a 10 out of 10 he's a great guy well he he, we can still make fun of him but he's just a really good guy (laughs) make fun of me uh we can't laugh we can't laugh at ourselves right you know it it was very short-sighted and if you can laugh at yourself you're going to be entertained the rest of your life so that's kind of the way i look at it are you done are you done in the dugout done done okay so that, that well, think about it. If he was in the dugout, there would be no chance he'd be going to see his son crew. That's <laughs> there'd be absolutely no chance. He wouldn't be a thought in his mind. He wouldn't even bring it up. No, I, I get it. You're right. No, you're exactly right. Because my my space, my my my, my life space has switched dramatically. I had I've had opportunities to get back in uniform, and I had a fresh one after I was fired in Pittsburgh. I actually went and interviewed for the hitting coach job of the Padres and was offered a two-year deal and went home and talked to my wife. And after Carl and I walked through it, and I don't know how many times I heard her say, well, the kids and I will figure it out. The kids and I will figure it out. The kids and I will figure it out. I said, honey, okay. I took a walk myself and figured it out that maybe it was time for me to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And just, it was time to be home. Yeah. 45 years in uniform, just so many wonderful things, some hard things too. But it was time to be home. And little did I know when I retired in my mind from wearing the uniform in the middle of November that the rest of the world would, would retire in mid-March when COVID hit. So not only did I retire, then I got shut down. Yeah. And I got plugged into my family in a very, a very uh, forceful way because I had been gone every two weeks. For all the years I'd known my wife, Carla, for all the kids, all the years of my kids' lives, I'm out of the house two weeks a month. And now for almost two years, I'm home every day. That was a lot. That, that, was, that was some tremendous learning lessons for all of us. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's a euphemism in there for sure. We're talking with Clint, Clint Hurdle. Because uh, I think to some degree we've all experienced it. And me as a journalist now doesn't have the same commitment on the road necessarily. But I, I had the same. It's so funny you say that. We'll, we'll work it out. A great 
partner will say that because they don't want to stand between you and your dreams and your aspirations. But you can feel it when that sacrifice starts to hurt. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, a couple quick questions here on the baseball side of things before we get into a bit of your baseball story. Um, you know, I, I read that, you know, the, the, the philosophy right now with the Rockies is not just to develop, it's to win because winning is part of development. I mean, you know, the two years ago, like the Yard Goats were not good. And then last year they were great. And so how, how do you balance the desire to win with the desire to develop? Well, it's a good question. And, and I would say that you're just understanding of both. There's times when the development part of it is probably going to drive the bus. And then there's part of the times when, you know what, we need to find ways to meet the demands of the game and win a ball game. And I think there comes a point in time where our mindset shifted uh, from, with, with Bill Schmidt and Chris Forbes that we weren't winning at the major league level. We weren't winning at the minor league level. You want to build a championship. You need to develop your own championship players. And one of the things I ask kids right away when they first sign up with us is, what are your, what are your dreams? And you know, every one of them rightfully so wants to be a big leaguer. And I'm more interested in what their next answer is because it goes, you know, sometimes it's lifestyle. You know, truth, truth told, sometimes it's money. Some of our kids need to provide for their families. We're encouraging them, you know what your next goal is, is to win a championship wherever you're playing. Go win a ring where you're playing that season. Go force us to move you at some point in time during the season based on the fact that you've performed well. You've met the demands of the game. And the one thing we are continuing to share with our players is the importance of meeting the demands of the game. There's tipping points in every game. When you meet those tipping points, you put yourself in position to win. When you don't meet the tipping points, you set yourself up to lose. So it's not rocket science, but we're, when you put an emphasis on it, I think you guys will agree with me as men. And I've talked to my wife about this. And when, when you put your focus on something, you get more out of what you're focused on, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and we want to let our kids know that winning's important. And once we get in between the lines, we're not practicing anymore. We're not working on something that we were out in the field at 3 o'clock doing. We're out there to compete. And that's been the big part of it. I think last year we finished second in, in, in baseball with number of minor league wins. And we had never even sniffed that position before. And our kids start taking it to heart. And, you know, the fun thing about what their mindset is now is we got, we got beat up last night a little bit 13 to 7 yeah. at the dunk. And you know what? The kids are coming back. They're, they're refreshed. They showered well. And they're ready to play today. Uh, before, sometimes, you know, you get beat 13 to 7. So, well, we'll see what happens today. No, we're going to make something happen today. I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah, Clint, you talked about, you know, organizations you know, building from within and, and, you know, developing their talent. Um, you manage a team in the Pirates where basically, you know, if you look back at the last 10 years, you pretty much had their last flux of good talent that they developed. And they're just, you know, you had the Garrett Coles and the Andrew McCutcheons and, uh, you know, they've all gone. And you look at that team over the last 10 years and you would think based on how they would finish that they would be in a better position than they are now. And yet they're not. Is there, is what, what in your opinion is like, what's the reasoning behind that? Like, is it, is it something where they're just not focused on, um, bring keeping the talent that's there or is it something they don't they don't want to spend to bring a piece of the puzzle in to build around well i don't think it's 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 any misunderstanding within the realm of baseball that we had a philosophy and i say we because we're all involved in it you may not all 
be on the same side of the fence of it, but, you know, there was a payroll that was dictated by fan base attendance and money revenues, and that's the amount of money we were going to spend. And if players got to a position where they priced themselves, that payroll was going to expend without an idea of guaranteed revenue matching it, we moved them. Hmm. I mean, you, you saw, look over the years, the people that have, you know, that have moved on from the Pirates. And the fact that we got very good at finding players on the margins and players that had not performed well, at, but it had some success in the past and brought them in to bring in an A.J. Burnett, to bring in a Jay Hop, to, to bring in a Francisco Lariano, to bring back Russell Martin, to bring back Francisco Cervelli, some of the guys we were able to go out and bring in. Jason Grilly, Mark Melanson. Um, we found some ways to do some good things, but there was never, ever talked about really a, long, of a plan on keeping players around for the long term. Hmm. McCutcheon at one time, I think, had signed the biggest contract as far as the number. It was like six years at 51. Russell Martin got paid $13 million, or I think we signed him for three. Can you imagine this? Three years at $27 million, nine a year, and that was the largest free agent contract they had put together at that time. Now, lately, they've gone out and spent some money, but the payroll really has been one of the bigger challenges on finding a way to do it. And that being said, the team down in Tampa Bay does it every year. So it's not an excuse. It can be done. It just makes your your safety net smaller and your misses can't be as often. you got to hit right a lot. You know, I find, though, that, you know, the, the teams that have done that cyclical element, right? I mean, listen, for Houston aside, you know, the, the A's sort of kind of perfected it. You know, you – you sort of inv- you, you you develop players, then when they're about to be expensive, you dump them off, and then you get a bunch of young talent. And you start over, and Pittsburgh had a little bit of that too. But it often leads the recipe to compete, but not the recipe to win it all. And so, are, I mean, are we going to have just a half a dozen teams in perpetuity who have a chance to win the World Series? You know, I I don't think that's anybody's mindset, but pragmatically on paper, it, it can look like that. Um, one of the things I like that's going on is that there's a handful of owners out there right now that don't care what anybody else thinks and they're spending their money and they want to win and they're giving their fan base more than hope. You know, now players got to go out and play. You look what they've done in with the Mets. You look what they've done with the Phillies. You look what the Padres are doing. Um, now, the, the, the financial and the fiscal responsibility and accountability, I don't know all, all about that. But I do believe you want to build a culture in which your fan base, it's not just based on hope every year. You know, because there comes a point when, when hope is not a game plan. Huh. It's not a strategy. Um, and the thing with moving players at, at their highlight of their career, you know, to get younger players – you don't bat a thousand on those deals, and not every one of those younger players you bring back turns into be a good player. It's 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 hard. It's an inexact science. So what you're seeing is some teams, well, they're being run like businesses. Unfortunately, I'm just going to cut to the chase. And when people are making money, it's a good business. When they're not making money, it's a bad business. And I I've, I shared with Neil Huntington all the time that I didn't ever want to hear the talk downstairs in the clubhouse that this is a business. It's never been a business to me. It's always been a sport. The day it would become a business for me is be the day I need to head back to the house again huh. and try that retirement thing that I failed at the first time. It's interesting you say and, that because and, every and, time and, every time you hear about a free agent, the first thing they say is, well, you know, this is a business. Yeah, It's the first thing out of their mouth. 
when they're going for free agency. Well, you know, baseball is, is a business. I understand that. So, yeah, that's – you should. And the second thing you hear, though, is they want to win. Yeah. Yep. And and you'd like to think that you can develop a culture where you're at, where they know that you're trying to win. But a lot of guys let leave because of what you brought up earlier. They don't believe they really have a chance to win. They have a chance to compete, maybe get to the playoffs. That's it. Yeah, it's pretty fast. We're talking about Clint Hurdle. Of course, played Major League Baseball, managed it, and now is a special assistant with the Colorado Rockies uh, dealing with their player development here on Fan Base, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. Brian Shackman and John Senecal here. You know, I, I'll, I'll sort of defer the rule changes and, and the managerial stuff for, for the end. I, I, you know, you brought up, you know, your mindset as as in, in baseball, and that started with you as a player. And I, you know, I, I remember the name Clint Hurdle because, you know, I, you brought up Neil Huntington. We went to the same college together. He was older than me, but we always follow the career of the people we're connected to. And, and, you know, I followed him closely when he was in Pittsburgh. And obviously I'm a Red Sox fan. And I remember the 07 World Series, which we'll get to, but I didn't know much about you. And then, you know, going back and reading some of your biography, it's, I always believe it as journalists that everyone has a story. And, you know, I, I want to go back. The people don't know your backstory, and you were in high school in Florida, and you could have gone to the University of Miami and maybe been a two-sport athlete. You could have gone pro in baseball, and and I believe you could have gone to Harvard, and you chose pro baseball. And you, it's funny you talk about about the winning and and that and the game, but I'm wondering, you know, in in a Billy Beanish life lesson way, did you make that decision to go pro? Because of the money or because you wanted to play baseball? Oh, my God, no, not because of the money. I want to play baseball. Um, I've been playing it since I was five in the backyard. You know, I, I can't tell you how many game sevens I had before I actually got drafted <laughs> in the backyard, wiffle ball. I mean, it was never about the money. I, I found out the hard way that things I've done for the money in life never have turned out good. I got the money, but there was too much other baggage, collateral damage that came with it that I usually would opt out and didn't want the money anymore. <laughs> Well, so why did you decide um, to go pro over those other options? You know, it's why does a dog wag his tail, his heart? My heart, I wanted to be a ball player. I wanted to give that my first shot. Um, I just love baseball. I love the practice. I love the community element, the team element. I love playing defense. When you don't have a day at the bat, with the bat, you can go out and throw leather and do something significant. I love celebrating the success of my teammates when they did well. I love to practice. I think that was the biggest thing. Football, I was – rumor has it I was a really good football player. as a quarterback. I was the guy you couldn't hit all week, uh, <laughs> wore the funny jersey, and Friday nights were awesome. Rather than that, it was, a, it was a pain. And my dad loved football. And to this day, we joke about it because there's people at home that say I picked the wrong sport to this day that I should have been a football player, but I didn't have the heart for football. I didn't have the desire to practice. Baseball, any day of the week, I could pick my, grab my stuff, get on my bike, go to a park, go to a field, stay there all day, come home. Football, oh, my God, practice. What time is it? Oh, when are we going to be done? It was just a different deal. Clint, after you're, after you're drafted and then you, get, you make it to the major leagues and then you have the honor of being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, <laughs> <laughs> I want to I wanna, – ask you about it's a big deal yeah, I mean, yeah i mean you talk about social media nowadays that back in the day was the social that media was it so if you're on the cover of that that's like that's like you being like the president of the united states in a way and doing your press conference but what i'm interested to ask you is did you feel like an emo- enormous amount of pressure after that oh yes and yeah i laugh when you said it was an honor um 
if it was an honor, I got dishonorably discussed. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a funny. I mean, I guess they don't story. ask you, right? They they basically just put no, you on. They there. don't ask you. They were they they told the story. My PR guy D Vogelar said they're gonna go. They're gonna visit 15 players this spring. You and Willie Wilson are one of them. We're on the same team. They want to do a photo shoot. Da 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 da. And then they'll pick somebody and they'll be on the cover. And this is when they were doing it annually, you know, for the next so-and-so or this year's phenom. I think that's what the, the yes. tag was on the, the front of the cover, this year's phenom for me. But a funny story is every morning on the way to spring training, we've done the cover shoot. Who knows what's going to happen? They don't even tell you when it's going to come out, you know. So I go every morning on the way into the ballpark, Terry Park in Fort Myers. I'm 20 years old. Um and I go, I stop at the 7-Eleven to get my breakfast of champions, my, <laughs> my honey bun and my quart of milk. Um, and you, you get your stuff, and if you remember back at 7-Eleven in 1978, you put it on the counter, and there wasn't a magazine section. There's three magazines in the 7-Eleven back in the, in the late 70s. One's Time, one's Newsweek, and one's Sports Illustrated. Yeah, They're right. all on the counter where you check out. So that day, I go to check out. The cashier guy's my age. And I put my stuff on the counter. He looks at me. Hey, good morning. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? And he goes, hey, wait a minute. I've seen you before. <laughs> and I go, yeah, I'm in here like every day. <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. This is weird. He goes, look. And I look at the magazine. He points down the magazine cover. And he looks at me. And I look at him. I look at the magazine cover. And I see me. And we look at each other. And I just freak out. I I just walked out. I left my, my honey bun. Oh, no. I left. Oh, yeah. The quart of milk and the honey bun are still there. You know? <laughs> still fresh. They're still there. 45 years later, they're still there. And and I walk out, and I was just paralyzed. And it wasn't fear. It was just numbness. It was like, oh, my gosh, something has changed. That, that was in my mind. And little did I know how much would change. Because as you said, no social media, that was a deal. You didn't have classes where they sent the rookies to Washington where MLB got involved and you had your own group training within your organization and PR and how to and what to do and what not to do and all these things. You figured it out on your own. I walk in that clubhouse and there's some guys that are laughing at me. There's some guys like, like that, that's really cool. And there's some guys that have been around 15, 20 years, never got their picture on the cover of yeah, anything. They're pissed. So they're angry. Yeah. That's incredible. That, whole, that was a lot. You know, it's funny. There's so many. We only have a few minutes left here, and I, I the first thing that pops out of me, you, you know, is you know this this just so you know for context, this podcast started as a pandemic thing. John's a huge Yankee fan. I'm a huge Red Sox fan. I've been in the media here in, in Connecticut for a number of years, and we just did it for fun, based on the Red Sox Yankees, and it's morphed into just a baseball podcast and. You know, when I think of uh, you, have just an incredible perspective because you were in the Mets clubhouse the year before they won it, and then you were in the Mets clubhouse the year after they won it, but not the year they won it. And I'm just, I'm curious about what your perspective was the year before when you were there. If you sort of, I, I mean, I know the young talent was there, and we got a little snippet of that from Billy Bean and Moneyball too. And then the year after. Did you maybe realize that maybe this was too? It, there were too many things going on for it to be a multiple-year championship run. I just wanted your perspective on your little Mets sandwich. 
Well, my Met sandwich was, it was a blessing in the sky as I got released opening day in Seattle after having the best spring training I ever had in my life. Hmm. Um, I'd been released by the Reds over the winter. So I was, I was, I was trending down, as, as they would say in today's sport world vernacular. I was trending down. Got released by the Reds, signed with the Mariners. Renee Latchman was the manager. I had the best spring ever. The day before opening day, I was pulled in the manager's office, told I made the team. Uh, Veda Pinson, uh, Frank Funk, Chuck Cartier, all the coaches, hugs. Oh, man, I was so excited. Called my dad, tell my dad, hey, get the car, get the trailer behind it, and ship it to Seattle. Can you drive? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. We're packed. We're going to go. So my next day, my dad leaves for, to drive from Florida, the East Coast. To Seattle. Well, that day I get to the park early. It's opening day, right? Um, I'm told to go upstairs and, and see the general manager, Daniel Bryan. And of course, I got to sign a contract. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. I go up and he tells me they're going to release me. And I was numb. I don't know if I heard anything after he said they were going to release me because it was just never even on my radar. Huh. Been told I'm making a team. So I have to go now tell my dad, and this is back when we were cell phones, guys. So I got to call uh, a friend of mine who knows a police guy who can call other police guys. They had to stop my dad in <laughs> he's driving across the, the nation to get to Seattle to stop the car and go back home. And now to try and get another job. Anyway, I called Dave, I called my agent, Ron Shapiro. He gets me a job at the Mets. You're going to go to AAA. Of course I'm going to go to AAA. It's opening day. Who's going to give me a big league job? So I meet Davey Johnson there. This is what started my Mets sandwich. Davey Johnson, I played for Davey. Then I get to the Mets. I play their 83, 84 of the Marlies, learn how to catch, learn how to play third base, get called up in 85. So I got to watch that year unfold. Davey did such a great job. Bill Stoddard, you could see it happening. There was a wave building. And then I get let go by the – I get rule five by the Cardinals. Whitey brings me back who I played for in Kansas City. And I'm thinking, oh, well, this is cool. You know, some pe- now people want me again. I go to St. Louis. The Mets won it all. I'm in St. Louis that year. We have a horrible year. That winter, I go back to the Mets. The Cardinals win it all the next year. They go to the World Series. For three years in a row, I was on the wrong team. I was on the Mets, Cardinals, Mets. And everybody went to the World Series except for the team I was on. So when I started showing up in the clubhouse, guys would be like, oh, God, here's the, you know, the kiss of death here. Here's number, lucky number 13. Well, I guess we'll finish second. It's like Angela Lansbury in Murder, She Wrote. She shows up in town. you got to leave. Somebody's going to die. It was crazy. But I got to see it unfold, and you could see it happening. And, you know, and Davey did such a nice job there and and a few other people. But the sustainability of what what goes into winning championships is hard. That's why when you see teams go on these these runs, these dynasties, it's pretty impressive because they say the hardest thing to do in pro sports is to repeat. And truthfully, I've seen that play out, you know, throughout my coaching career, my playing career, and my managerial career, for, and for other people that I know within the game. You know, Clint, um, I was talking to Brian before the show, and it was like, you know, his his role now is a special assistant. I was like, you know, what exactly is a special assistant? But then when you boil it down and you look at your career and, you know, all the accolades and your, your experiences, you know, the Rockies hit a home run here with you to have you as a special assistant. Um, but I have, a, like, a more serious question to talk to you about. Um you had been open about your struggle with alcohol in the past. And uh, I myself am going on like two and a half years of sobriety now. Um, and yourself as a special assistant and how you relate and talk to players, 
I mean, let's let's be honest. There's substance abuse in every profession, and I'm, I'm sure it's going on in every organization at some point. Is that something that you talk to openly with players about, or is that something that you struggled with while you were a player, or is it something later in your career that you had to deal with? Well, I, I talk openly. You know, there's one other thing. I still go to A meetings. Uh, I'm headed to one. This, I'm headed to one tomorrow morning here in Hartford. Um, you know, they, they talk about anonymity, and I get it. It's important for a lot of people. And for all the right reasons. For me, I kicked my anonymity to the curb a long time ago. And it's not because I'm special. It's not because I'm – I just think I can help use it as a platform for others to welcome them and make them understand that they're, they, may be, they may be bent, but they're not broken. They may be bruised, but it's not over. I was fortunate that, you know, I started drinking in pro ball. I, I, and I, you know, I tried to become a pro on everything I did. Mm. And, you know, jokingly, I tell people I got to retire from drinking after my five millionth beer. Um, but I have 24 years of sobriety. It's something I do share with the player, players. Our players in the organization know it. And I just, they all got my number anyway about anything. And it's one of the things I really feel I've been blessed with in my life. I've dealt with hardship. I've dealt with loss. I've been divorced twice. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a cancer survivor. There's not a lot you can throw at me that I haven't had to figure out or deal with, you know, cry, laugh, hug. And I think players can identify with failure and struggle more than they can with a guy that's got nine gold gloves and 14 silver bats. And, you know, I'm, most of the time I travel with Helton. His back's thrown out, so he can't be here this time. You want to talk about salt and pepper. I mean, you got Todd Helton that walks in, pretty special cat, you know, gifted on the diamond. And then I can share with them a lot of different ways and these managers. But there's no doubt there's players that are hurting. And mental depression, you know, is probably as big a thing as going on within our within our world, let alone sport, as anything else right now. And just trying to get people to understand that, you know, your feelings are your feelings, and, and you need to pay attention to them. But sometimes feelings aren't facts. And if you're numbing yourself to get through your day, obviously there might be a better option. And I just share with them my journey mm-hmm. and, and what's transpired since I got sober, because None of what I accomplished on the other side of ball after playing would ever have happened if I didn't get sober, I believe, with all my heart. I mean, 17 years as a major league manager, there's people that still laugh about that. How in the hell did he ever get hired twice? Yeah, so uh, I knew him when. I, I got to tell um, you, though, you know, I, I want to ask you if you think your playing career would have been different, but I, in the interest of time, what you say is really in, in, dynamic to me because one of the things in my head in doing the research to talk to you is that it says something about a person – that even teams that like let you go, then hire you as a manager. So it hires you in their organization. So I think that that, that there's a little bit of uh, humility there that, that that that's misplaced in the sense that you clearly established some strong relationships, you know, in places that you might not have even thought you you were highly successful. And so I, I think that that's a testament to you know who you are as a person, you know, pre sobriety or post sobriety. But I. You know, as someone who still does imbibe, but I, alcohol is damaging no matter who you are, no matter how much you have. I mean, it's just not, it's, it's not, it's not a healthy thing. But you talk about the success you had after, you know, your playing career. I, I want to go to 07 because we only have time for a couple more questions. And, you know, again, I, I was there, you know, I, I experienced 86 as a fan and I had a friend who worked for the Red Sox. I was there in 03 when they lost to the Yankees. I was there in 04. When it all changed, and I was there in 07 too. And I'm just curious. People don't know the history of the Rockies. I mean, you know, obviously expansion franchise, and had had this incredible run at the end of the season, and just steamrolled the playoffs. 
and then go to the World Series and get stopped cold. And I'm, how did that? I'm, I'm curious now that you look back on it. How, how did that happen? Well, first and foremost, we were we were hovering around 500 all year. And I, one thing I kept sharing with our guys, we haven't got hot yet. You know, I am the eternal optimist. My wife will tell you, I'm that guy that sometimes wears on you because I believe in positivity. I believe in negativity. I know what's going to happen if you're negative. You're trying something negative. I know what's going to happen. Positive people, there's a chance something good's going to happen. But we got hot late. And we got more than hot. We got scalding hot. And we won 21 out of 22 to get invited to the World Series. And we won it so quickly and efficiently. We had eight days off. And I will say this. We lost to a hot team, a talented team. Bad combination to run into. However, eight days off, that killed us. Our momentum, our mojo, our swagger, it just, it, it was gone. You know, we were playing on adrenaline. We were playing on... The rhythm, you know, there is a rhythm to the game. And to set eight days and practice and try live BPs and inner squads and crowd noise pumped in and all that, it didn't help. And then we ran into a team that was red hot. So that's how that happened in my mind. Better team won. I would have loved for us to take, like they did, have, have a day off or something, or two at the max, and then start keep playing again. Because we were something fun to be around, something fun to watch when we went on that roll at the end. Yeah, baseball is not meant for sitting around. If you're rolling, you got to keep rolling. That's for exactly. sure. Exactly. Well, listen, I, you know, I, we, we appreciate the time we we've had, and and maybe we'll get a chance to talk to you again, Clint. And I think for young fans, I mean, John has two sons who are just who just bleed the game of baseball, and uh, and and I I think John's right, and we don't mean to be sycophantic or blow smoke, but you know, I mean, f- to have you in the, in the organization with the playing and with the managing, it's just must be must be fun for the for the kids to get to just. To just hang, and plus the hair. How's the hair doing? The hair, you know, <laughs> you can hit a seven iron out of my hair. Warren <laughs> Burnabell, our third baseman, puts his head on my hair every time I come in because he goes, he goes, nice, nice. It's just, yeah, it's that little, that little patch of what fake grass they threw down at the golf course every once in a while for you to hit, hit irons off of. Um, I will share this with you for those that are out there, listeners. If somebody's needs some encouragement somebody maybe was looking for some faith or something. I put out two daily emails free and all you got to do is go to clinthurdle.com to sign up. It's mail proof. It's free. It's easy to sign up. You hit clinthurdle.com. It takes you to my very short website and it gives you an opportunity to plug in your address and you pick which devotional you want. One's encouragement, one's faith. You can pick both. You can pick one, but it comes from a lot of people that I read thoughts I have. It's daily. Well, it's six days a week. I kind of run it on the Chick-fil-A philosophy. We take Sundays off. Clint, I, you read uh, my mind. I was just going to ask you about that, and that's interesting. You want to tell the quick backstory how you 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 how you started that real quick, how this evolved. Well, we started it. My one of my greatest mentors was Kelly McGregor, who was the president of the Rockies, and ten years younger than me. Just a magnificent man. He loved me. He cared for me. He grew me up off the field. He helped me grow up on the field. But he was our team president, and he encouraged me to start a little get together with some people to, to kind of cross pollinate. I had some coaches, I had some front office employees, and I had a couple leaders in the front office would come down twice a homestand and we'd have a leadership 30 minute leadership thing. We'd, we'd pick a, somebody would pick a, a, a person, a place or a thing. And then I'd come up with some quotes and some thoughts and we would just spend a half hour together. And then I would wrap it up in a text and then send it back to them just so they could review the notes. And at the bottom, I would put, make a difference today. Well, 
I started it in 09. Um, two months into the season, I got fired. And I can remember after doing it for two months, I loved doing it. I loved the people. Everybody loved it. And for two months, you know, and then that's all over. Um, my swipe card doesn't work anymore. My wife tells me to take off my watch. You got nowhere to go. They don't want you down there. And we're on a vacation at the Outer Banks, and it's July 4th weekend. And I get a phone call on a morning walk with my wife. Um, and I don't take it because I'm on a walk with my wife. I wait till we get back. I call. It's one of the ladies that worked for the Rockies that was, was in the, the leadership get-together. And she goes, well, how are you doing? I said, well, it's kind of weird. It's my first vacation in 35 years. Hmm. But I'm good. You know, I'm with my kids and my wife. I said, I'm, I'm good. She, I go, how are you doing? She goes, to be honest with you, she goes, the baseball part of it, ever since they fired you, we're starting to win a lot, which is good. <laughs> she goes, however, everybody around here misses you because you were more than a manager, you were a friend. She goes, I miss our, our, our meetings. I miss that sharing, that learning. And she goes, you used to write Make a Difference Today, Love Clint, at the bottom of all of them. I go, yeah, I did. She goes, well, I don't think either one of them is true anymore. I don't, you're not making a difference in my life anymore, and I don't think you love me. And I just said, oh, okay, thanks. And I hung up. And my wife goes, what happened? You know, I'm a, I go, I just got a call. And I told her what happened. She goes, well, what are you going to do? I, I, I'm going to figure it out. Go back to that, right? I'm going to figure it out. I took a walk, and I go, you know what? I'll just start sending out texts Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and to that group. Well, that group was 12, and then it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and the text messaging got so complicated for me. My wife's laughing at me. I'm trying to send 1,000 texts a day. It's not, It's a mess. And then I go emails, and that builds. It's up over 6,500 people for the encouragement email and over 5,500 for the, for the devotion. And they go out six days a week. Wow. It's crazy. Well, you got a couple more, a couple more subscribers after today. Um, hey, listen, Clint, we, we appreciate the time. Uh, we look forward to hopefully meeting you face-to-face next time you're in Hartford because we're down at the Yard Goats all the time. We're good good friends with Tim as well. So um, thank you so much. Yeah, best of luck to you, Clint. Thank you. You guys are welcome. My next trip in, I'll reach out ahead of time, and we'll watch the game together. How about that? That sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds awesome. You've been listening to Fanbase, a deep dive into the greatest rivalry in sports. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.